Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yo, what is up? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the money! Different movie, but still, uh, <laughs> still, still, still thematically. I feel like it still sense. works. It does work. Yo, what up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We have Ryan. Some film fans. And if you're watching the screen, say what up to Matt Keebler. I don't know if you can see what I see, but I see Matt, and Matt is our producer. So say what up to Matt, even though he's not on the, the thing with us, but what up, Matt? And then really say what up to Raymond. Hey everybody, how's it going? Looks like I am not on the video feed. I wonder if my audio is going through to the stream. Uh, I, I'm, we'll I think figure. you're on now. Yeah. I mean, I can I, I can hear... Oh, there I am. There, hey, everybody. There it is. What up, everybody? Should have left, you, left, left me out of the picture. There oh. we go. I got my wish. Oh, Put em. All right. So anyway, uh, this week was kind of um, a last-minute decision. We were like, if we could do something really cool in the final final kind of... We were going to do a different one, which I think we're going to do in the future, which I'll... I, should we say it? Should we say what we're going to do? Yeah, I think, I think we're doing Moonlight next week. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're going to do Moonlight next week. Um, one, to celebrate Pride, but we wanted to make sure that we had uh, somebody on that was going to chat with us. Uh, you've been on the podcast before, Rashawn, but couldn't make it this week. So we are going to be doing it next week. So we were like, what can we do to kind of do something cool and slick that we think that would be interesting for everybody? And we were like, what about Ocean's Eleven? One, I don't know. Have we done a Soderbergh film yet, Ryan? No. Do we do Out of Sight? I we don't didn't. think we would have. No. I, I don't think, think we have. I think you were, you, re- you requested it on one of the polls one I time. Would, I love that movie. Yeah. 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 And we didn't. So we were like, well, shoot, let's do Ocean's Eleven. And so we're going to be doing the 2001 Soderbergh-directed Ocean's Eleven starring friggin' everybody charming in the world. George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, Don Cheadle, Bernie Mac, Andy Garcia. The list goes on and on. You got a baby Casey Affleck in there as well. So what we'll do is what we normally do. We'll go around and do first impressions, see what it was like the first time, and then subsequent viewings of watching this film, and then what was it like visiting it this time around. Let's start with Raymond. What are your thoughts on Ocean's Eleven? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've probably seen this movie well into the double digits. This is one of those movies that was just like always on HBO constantly when when I was in high school. Um and it's just so much fun. It's so slick uh, and so well edited. It's one of those movies that when you're cruising channels, you kind of just have to stop <laughs> and watch. And especially if you, especially if you tune into the first thirty minutes when they're going through that, all those vignettes of getting the team together. The all, all those scenes are so much fun. This cast is great, as you mentioned before. Um, I don't know when the first time I actually watched it from cover to cover was because it. It's one of those movies, like I said, that it feels like you've seen it just from having watched it in bits and pieces on TV a thousand times. But um, 
I, I know uh, whenever that first time was, I've probably watched it uh, start to finish six or seven times since then. I, I just think it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's really good. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, what about you, Ryan? Yeah, this movie is like cinematic crack to me. It's just, <laughs> it's so well made. And like you said, slick. Like that's the movie I think that gets thrown around with this movie. It's slick because it feels, it is. It's like you have every famous person in Hollywood with a director at the top of his game. He literally, the year before this movie is made, you know, just to paint a picture, he won Best Director at the Oscars for Traffic, I want to say. And was nominated you know, he, twice for Best Director, Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. Yeah, and yeah, his last four movies are just, or five movies, you know, yeah, it's Out of Sight, Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, and this movie. And I think the Limey was there more in the middle, but we don't have to talk about that one. I like Anyway, Set Soderbergh is such an enigma to me because he has the weirdest filmography with the weirdest bouncing between genres and budgets and non-actors and actors and styles and themes and and everything is different in every one of his movies and i love that about him it's super hit or miss for me i mean not all of them are hits but this is certainly his most like i'm gonna make something for everybody i'm this is my gift to the masses to use my my talents to actually make a movie that people want to watch as opposed to like schizopolis <laughs> or you know uh-huh. any of his shea part one and two his four-hour epic about guevara anyway th- this movie is awesome and it's a well-worn formula that uh, that has been told before it's literally a remake you know but when you think about oceans 11 no one even i think remembers that this is a remake from today because it feels so fresh and new uh with everybody um so hats off to him for making this cool movie. However, he did follow it up. I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point with one of my least favorite films of all time, Ocean's 12. Um, but then brought it back home at the end with Ocean's 13, which I think is perfectly watchable. Not as good as Ocean's 11, but that's a different podcast. Yeah, it's interesting. We can talk quite a bit. I think we should, as much as possible, talk about Soderbergh and his directing style yeah. once we get on the other side. Because I think that's what makes this film work. Yeah, I like like Raymond. I don't remember the first time that I saw this film. It kind of. I think I've seen it so many times or I've seen parts of it so many times that it just has like, as weird as this sounds, it's like it's just always been... Like when I, I like I don't remember a time before it in my life, if that makes sense, <laughs> right? Like even if I think about myself as a child, I somehow view myself as having had seen Ocean's Eleven. Like it's just like there are certain films that are just like in yeah. my brain, you know. And Ad Ad one. stands for After Danny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I I don't know, and I was again, I was a little bit cautious. I was a little bit worried going into this viewing because I was like. The film's 20 years old now, and it's been a few years since I've watched it cover to cover, you know? And I was a little bit like, I know it's slick, and I know it's cool, and I know all that stuff, but, like, is it still going to freaking land? And it was freaking great, and I watched it with someone, and they'd never seen it before, and I was like, how have you never seen this? And this person is in the entertainment industry, so it was like freaking kind of a, a like a like a bringing, a bringing, bringing this product into their lives, and it was fantastic, and... Uh, it was just such an enjoyable experience. It is. It's as fresh as ever. The only thing that gives it away that it's 20 years old, uh, as I was saying on Twitter to Michael Burns, is the cell phones and the computer technology when they're going through the, vault, the vaults. But even then, the computer technology is still kind of slick So uh, for that time. So I don't know. It just feels like it 
it's one of those timeless films. I guess people say that all the time, but I think it's still going to be fresh 50 years from now. I think people will still find enjoyment out of it. And then for me, what was most interesting, and again, we can talk about this after the synopsis, was that I was thinking a lot about like intertextual references as I was watching this. I was thinking about um, things in cinema that this film is clearly, at least in my mind, was clearly paying homage to or referencing or kind of playing with. And I thought some of those things were kind of interesting as well that I hadn't really noticed previously. And there are a couple films in particular that really stuck out to me that made me think about some of the, the themes that this film is able to explore that maybe other films in this genre historically were not able to explore, particularly because of the Hayes Code. Right, so um, some interesting like things like that that we could talk about. But before we start pulling this film apart, let's do a brief recap of the plot, which really is kind of doing a disservice to this film because this film is so much about the style and the flash. But here you go. We'll we'll, we'll give the the little kind of bullet points here. So. Following his release from prison, Danny Ocean needs to get back in the game, so he travels to California to reconnect with his partner in crime, Rusty, to pitch a new heist idea. The plan is to rob three Vegas casinos. They decide that they're going to need a great team, though, and, of course, substantial financial backing, so they travel to Vegas to ask for Ruben's support. At first, Ruben says no, but when he finds out that they plan to rob Terry Benedict, Ruben's rival, he agrees. Danny and Rusty then assemble the rest of a team, which is basically an assortment of variously skilled criminals, and they all begin to plan for the big heist, which is two weeks away. They start with reconnaissance to learn all the ins and outs of the casino security system, and they even build a mock casino vault in a warehouse where they are seemingly running rehearsals. It's just for practice. Just practice. During this phase, the team learns that Terry Benedict is dating Danny's ex-wife and that his motivation for robbing the casinos is not solely about the money, but that emotion is now involved. So Rusty urges Danny to back out, but Danny refuses, so they move ahead with the plan. On the night of the robbery, an elaborate scheme unfolds, ultimately leading to the plan going gangbusters and $160 million from the casino vault safely makes its way outside the casino and into the possession of Ocean's Eleven. Danny's arrested for parole violation, but no worries, he's only going to serve a short three to six month sentence. And with $160 million being split Evenly, 11 ways, the team individually go their separate ways. A few months later, Danny is released from prison. He's met by Rusty and his now rekindled lover, Tess. And they drive off, being followed by Terry Benedict's bodyguards. End of movie. All right, but before we continue, we've got to give a shout out to our sponsor, Storyblocks. Look, if you're a creator, whether it's doing audio work, say for a podcast, or whether it's video work, Say for a YouTube channel, like you want to be the next wisecrack, head over to Storyblocks because you can get access to an unlimited library of over 1 million royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. I'm a creator not only with the Wisecrack brand, but also in my own right. I do freelance work, whether it's in film, music video, etc., etc. And finding good sound effects, finding good B-roll is always a pain in the butt because you got to pay royalties and things like that, which is why Storyblocks is so rad because you can have access to an endless, endless supply of, like I said, videos, even effects. Like if you're doing an After Effects project and you need something funky to kind of spice up the frame or to add in some sort of cool effect that's going to just kind of add that extra oomph to whatever it is that you're trying to produce, then you can get all that good stuff over at Storyblocks. 
So head over to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. Or you can click the link down in the show notes and you can get all kinds of information. And then you can get access to their unlimited plans, which is what I use. And it's freaking awesome. So yeah, Storyblocks, get it. Make cool art. Now back to the show. Okay, so how do you start on a film like this, right? I had a couple friends that were like, what are you even going to talk about? Because it's not like a film that wears its themes on its sleeves, like some films, right? Like it's not like a Wachowski film or something like that, where it's clearly a philosophical essay in the guise of the moving image. So what do you think? What do you, what's the first thing when someone says Ocean's Eleven, what do you think? Teamwork. <laughs> I think getting the band together, you know, that's yeah. half the movie is just meeting all, it's an ensemble piece, you know, it's like, uh, I think even Ted Griffin, the screenwriter had said he, he based some of it on like The Great Escape or Magnificent Seven, where it's just a bunch of dudes trying to make a plan and then you watch them, you know, you see them plan out the plan, you see them set up for the plan, you see them carry out the plan and then, oh shit, the plan didn't go according to plan. And then you watch them adapt for the new plan. And then the movie ends, and it's a very satisfying thing almost <laughs> almost every time if they do it right. And Cedar Sober did. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Ray? Yeah, I think um, this is a great example of uh, not only a really fun movie, but also uh, a really good example of what a remake can be at its best. Because if you, if you put this sort of side-to-side side with the Lewis Milestone movie, it, it's kind of like... It's less like watching a remake and more like just watching a double feature. And I think that's that's what a lot of the best remakes are. And to Ryan's point, Ted Griffin talking about the the sort of ensemble or group movies that uh, like the men on a mission movies that inspired this. I I, I think it it is really smart about how I I think he also said uh, that he never like every 10 pages he needed to bring some like his sort of rhythm on this was no one should be gone from the movie for more than 10 minutes at a time. And the way that this ensemble is balanced, uh, you know, when, when I think about this movie, I think of that. I think of how you never lose track of these characters, how despite such a, uh, you know, it comes in around two hours. It's not the shortest movie in the world, but it's, it, it feels brisk. The, the characters are light and lively um, you like all of them. You're rooting for all of them. None of them seem underdeveloped or given short shrift. And I think maybe that you know that uh, the credit for that can go to uh, uh, I think a real crackerjack script from Ted Griffin. But also, you just can't compete with this cast. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> it's it's so great when you can just put like Bernie Mac in a role this size, and he's just gonna he's gonna make a total meal out of it every time he's on screen. Yeah. Like. That that goes such a long way. If you had lesser actors playing these roles, they may not be as uh, as memorable. But people try this awesome. all the time. All, all, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was gonna say people try ensemble films all the time, and most of the time, I would say they kind of fall flat, don't they? No, depends. Give me an example. Like what? Well, in my mind, I'm thinking of all of those, like like Love in New York. What are they called? Like those ones? Oh, where oh Valentine's sure, Day or sure. the Gary Marshall made like a, New Year's Day. Yeah, they make like a hundred of those, man. And they just, I don't know. They just don't seem to work. It's almost like, I uh those I mean, the project of those movies is quite different from the project of a movie like this. And I, I think if you, 
it's far more instructive to look at something that this movie is actively kind of standing in the shadow of something like uh for example if you if you listen to the commentary with uh, Soderbergh and Ted Griffin he talks about how uh despite loving the dirty dozen you only really get to know like half of the dirty dozen the other guys are all just kind of there um and he was saying that it, uh that there is this sort we we talked about it maybe on the street fighter episode as well that they when they were pitching that movie uh the the screenwriter on it uh basically got the the producers on board with like max seven fighters because he quote uh, or he told them that's all the audience could keep track of at one time and then as the movie progressed they just kept cramming more and more fighters in there until the movie just sort of (laughs) collapsed under its own weight a little bit um but yeah, I think this this ensemble, it yeah, it works for two reasons. Like I said before, it's really well written and it's really really well acted, and and none of the characters are written as second place characters. You know, like George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon. Maybe they're the stars of it, but just because we spend the first. 20 minutes with them while everyone else is just being introduced but once everyone's in the mix it, it is a pretty i would say a fairly even balance and that goes a long way to making it work awesome i'll i'll, I'll give you something we could talk about with yeah. this thing it's like uh, um you know one thing we haven't mentioned yet you you had said that they're all fun likable characters but these are all remember criminals yeah, they're all bad guys they're, they're, they're yeah. anti-heroes yeah theoretically but but there's a class element to this yes that i think everyone that hollywood especially loves where it's like all right we're cool with watching these criminals and bad guys and thinking that they're you know fun cool dudes and uh, and like their lifestyle if they're going after a worse criminal right? <laughs> yes in this case we see as the big head honcho of of the casino andy garcia or whatever so it's like yeah it's it's kind of a robin hood little man going yeah. against the big guy situation even though it's a bunch of you know guys in and out of jail for petty theft and stealing and all sorts and, and worse things but they're just going up against a guy who theoretically we hate more you know yeah. in the context Soder- of the film. soderbergh even said that that he was he was attracted to this project specifically because uh, he thought it would do well with an audience because everyone's been ripped off by a casino before and that no one's going <laughs> to yeah. feel bad about a casino getting ripped off. In right. Return. Who can fuck the house, man? Yeah. As a gambler, I 100% uh, uh, agree with that. Too. Um, but yeah, so uh, there's, to a, that there's end, a book. Austin, I was. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah. So there's a book called The Philosophy of Steven Soderbergh, and there's an essay in there called Competing Modes of Capital in Ocean's Eleven. And it's written by R. Palmer. So, but the the book is just called The Philosophy of Steven Soderbergh. For anyone that's interested, it's a bunch of like a an assortment of philosophical essays. But so the essay starts with with this. It starts with why not do it? Because yesterday I walked out of the joint after losing four years of my life, and you're cold decking teen beat cover boys. Because the house always wins. You play long enough, you never change the stakes. The house takes you unless. When that perfect hand comes along, you bet big, and then you take the house. And then this essay goes on to kind of talk about what the real tension is. Like the macro tension is you've got the crew, let's say, getting the band back together in the middle. But then you've got on one hand, you've got old Vegas that kind of maybe represents old money, old capital in the form of Ruben. 
And then you've got New Vegas in the form of Terry Benedict, who's like this slick European financier guy whose schedule is perfect and all this other stuff. And yeah, so what you have, yeah. and he's a machine, right? You've got like this triangulation of like new, efficient, financialized capital in the form of Benedict. And then like old school muscle, he plays a little bit dirty, probably part of like some sort of organized crime syndicate, Ruben, right? Kind of guy. Like if you've been to Vegas, he doesn't, his casinos aren't on the strip. His are the ones that are in old, the old part of Vegas, right? Like that's, that's Fremont Street. That's, that's, him, that's him, right? And then you've got the crew, and they kind of serve kind of in between these two. But like you said, Ryan, they're kind of like lesser criminals, but they're still the ones we root for because they're kind of pulled in this transitional stage of American capital, American money, American wealth that, that Vegas has kind of like always been a beacon of, you know? You get that notion from Elliot Gould that, like, you know, there used to be some honor in being a crook. That's right. <laughs> like, that's right. Now it's now it's all just people doing numbers on a computer. They don't even have to get their hands dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you want to synthesize, you know, the quote unquote American dream is just you know a bunch of people trying to come over and make a quick buck. Mm. It's like this is Vegas is the American dream on crack. Uh, and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to come over and I, I could win big or I can lose big highs and lows, but it's a whole city based on the premise basically well, of America. I was actually uh, dovetailing off of that essay, Austin. I was going to bring up the notion of just relative morality in general, which is something mm. you kind of see, not necessarily in all of his works, but there is a sort of through line, you know, starting with sex lies and videotape sort of nibbling around the edges or the gray areas of morality like characters for example I, I think of James Spader in Sex Lies and Videotape talking about how like oh yeah no I'm I'm aware of my perversion I've made my my peace with that and when people are like grilling him on it later in the movie he's just like yeah no I never I never denied who I was what's your problem <laughs> you know right like there there's always this notion of uh, of sort of like uh, a hierarchy of, uh, I mean, you see that in traffic, you see that in Ocean's Eleven, you yes. see that in uh, the informant, girlfriend experience. the girlfriend experience, absolutely, uh, the informant with Matt Damon, which I, I rewatched recently, just like all of these people who see, who are like very clearly aware of their place on like the morality ladder, and just have really no compunction about that because they know like what they did to get there isn't nearly as bad as the people above them, or in some cases the people beneath them. Yeah, sometimes it's called hierarchical ethics, and you totally have that, right? You've got, like, Reuben, old money. He was a an old-school criminal when you actually look somebody in the eye when you broke their legs. Then you've got the new-school criminals and Terry Benedict, and then you've got this this gang of kind of, like, whatever they are. But the, the thing that's amazing about them is this is exactly what Ryan was talking about. It's getting the gang back together. It's about teamwork. They have their own sort of, like, code, you know, and there is an ethic, and it's kind of like don't let emotion get involved. Make sure you're doing this for the job because – this is going to look out for everybody on the team. And so there's also like a sort of like world, like an economic and social world that this little crew has to abide by in order to in order to accomplish the task. And we root for the task because the, the, the crime that they're committing isn't one that we're really offended by, <laughs> you know. Have, have you guys seen have you seen the original? With uh, Frank Sinatra and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, with Frank Sinatra. That movie is almost a perfect example of like that is Ruben's movie. <laughs> like yes, that is the yes. world that Ruben comes from. Yeah, when Ruben Matt comes Damon, out of that world. Yeah, when Matt Damon turns to them when they're breaking down the um, when they're breaking down the scheme at Ruben's house, and Matt Damon says, 
you know, kind of ironically, he goes, so just a smash and grab job then. And they, they have a little back and forth, he and Brad Pitt. When you watch the, the 1961, it literally is just a smash and grab. It's, it's Ocean's <laughs> Eleven because they knock over five casinos and they need two guys per casino. It's literally just like one guy holding a dude hostage while the other guy clears out the vault. And then their 11th is Sammy Davis Jr. going around in a dump truck picking up all the money. And it's just like, it is just so... It's so simple and unsophisticated, and it was, you know, Hayes era, uh, although, you know, near the end of it. Um, so at the end of the movie, of course, they're not allowed to get away with it. That's right. You know, the, like, so th- there is just this kind of, I think, sort of unique tension between uh, this movie and the original adaptation. Another thing I was thinking of, because I've been on a little bit of a Matt Damon bender. Ryan, I know you're a big fan of Rounders. Um, okay. recently I rewatched Goodwill Hunting, Rounders, and then this, and I thought to myself, like, Matt Damon might be playing the same character in all three of those. <laughs> like, he starts as this genius cleaning up at MIT, and then he, he, uh, ends up getting involved in cards because he can, you know, apply his, uh, his his logic to that Good point, and then uh, you know he he eventually makes his way to Vegas chasing that dream, and uh, it doesn't work out as well. Then he as he gets thought. in the CIA, <laughs> and then he gets and, in the uh, CIA the and the informant. informant. Yeah, I do. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. There is an interesting conversation happening between this one and the original. Yeah, let's do this for people that might not be as familiar. Can we talk a little bit about the Hayes Code? for people that would want to know, like, what exactly was the Hayes Code and how did it exert any sort of authority over the filmmaking process, what stories could be told, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. It was some bullshit, (laughs) some government bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it was was adopted uh, right around the same time as as sound was being instituted in moving pictures. Um, The basic idea behind it was to limit the uh, the sort of like sexuality and criminality that was depicted on screen, which uh, throughout the 30s, or at least the early 30s, because it was adopted in 1934, um, especially coming out of Warner Brothers, there was a lot of like gangster pics that were really big and uh, people were just appalled by all of this, seeing James Cagney uh, clutch his chest and, and uh, howl as though that's the most violent thing that could ever be depicted on screen. Um, it lasted until like 1968. Uh, 68, it wasn't... Yeah. It wasn't really all that well enforced near the end of it. Uh, to wit, the original Ocean's Eleven has a good handful of pretty racy stuff. And even though it's not like putting really like racy or risque things on screen, uh, there there is a lot of uh, stuff where they're just saying explicitly, uh, you know, sexual things out in the open. Um, so it, it was kind of falling apart. But if, uh, if you want to read a really good book about it, um, or not necessarily about the Hayes Code, but uh, Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris, which covers the 1968 Oscar race, um, which was uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate, uh, In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, and Dr. Doolittle kind of representing the old guard. Uh, that that book is kind of about how like the Hayes era sort of was falling apart in real time and how this whole wave of movies kind of came out all at once to sort of like show at the door and usher in the, the new Hollywood era that was more uh, driven by personal auteur visions. Um, and uh, yeah, things, things that you could not see on screen for the past three decades. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of pent up demand for sex, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, it's just like our our. It was a more strict MPAA kind of thing that was enforced. You know, Austin said uh, uh, 
kind of enforced by the government, but Hitchcock was infamously always trying to skirt around the Hayes code. And so he was, you know, it's like, okay, uh, your kiss, that is six seconds. You have to, you can only do two seconds or you can't even get to the kiss or stuff like that. And there's a really funny scene shot in, uh, I think it's notorious or one of those where, it's, it's, it's them break, on a train at the end, and, and yeah, it's like like the final shot is them falling on the bed right as the train is going into a tunnel. So it's supposed to like be simulating the phallic, you know, fucking that's, uh, train that's dick north, north uh, entering into the tunnel vagina, and uh, that's what it, that was Hitchcock's final of uh, 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 what he was <laughs> leaving you with the movie. Yeah, and that's, uh, all sorts of interesting creative ways to get around the Hayes Code, and uh, yeah, yeah go read about I was thinking a lot about one of my favorite movies of all time, but with an ending that just fucking hurts my heart because I grew up in a world post Hayes Code and I want to see the bad guys get away, but it's the killing. Um, that ending... Yeah, that has similarities to this movie, too. I was thinking a lot... I, that's that's the film that really... Like that, and then I was thinking about like some Bond slickness, like especially when they're in the vault and they have like the crazy technology that they have and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I was really thinking a lot about the killing when I was watching this. And... Um, it's just how you could not let them get away, right? They they rob this track and, and they have all this money and you think, man, you think like, fuck, he's going to get away. He's going to get away. And then that goddamn briefcase opens up on the tarmac and money is just blowing everywhere. And my heart, when I first saw it, and I first saw it, you know, within the last 10 years, my first, my, the first time I saw my heart, I was like, no, I was like, no, I was rooting for them so much to get away. And it's just funny to think that that wasn't – it wasn't simply a a decision of story craft, but it was probably something that was, you know, um, forced upon them by the studio because of the code. I doubt that actually. Uh, uh, really? For that movie specifically, mainly because, I mean, if you think about it, that's the – Hollywood want, would want the movie to come out that, that where the people got away. But like you said – I think Stanley Kubrick, if you asked him, he would probably, I mean, I'm just guessing, but uh, uh, that he would say like, yeah, like, like I, it's a morality tale. These people, you know, have to be punished at the end and not necessarily just because, oh, the Hayes Code made me, you know, make my, make my movie a certain way. He'd probably be the first person to say, fuck you, or just not make the movie uh, to begin with. Yeah. But, uh. In terms of all, I'm glad you brought up the killing though, because that's an awesome film noir, Stanley Kubrick uh, heist movie. You have a dog tr- horse racing track, I want to yeah. say. And um, uh, I re- had read an article recently about Steven Soderbergh, and they had kind of talked about how he really has made a ton of movies that are considered mo- modern noirs in a sense, which kind of mm. goes back to how he's all of his movies have lots of anti heroes with their own kind of morality that we've been talking about, and uh, or or different or every character in the movie has kind of conflicting morality and, and they're not necessarily any of them are good, but, uh, his, his most recent movie, no sudden move is a literally a uh, noir film set in like the fifties with, uh, uh, that, and then the laundromat was a recent one about that. Um, the Panama papers, high flying bird, they were kind of saying is, it's almost like a, a semi noir set in the basketball world, Logan and then obviously mm-hmm. Logan Lucky side effect. All of these movies, Ocean Seven Eleven, yeah, all the Ocean's movies, <laughs> yeah, obviously are kind of like fun hip noirs. Uh, you know, uh, I guess. Well, I don't know if that's even a thing, but 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 you get what I'm saying. You can kind of fit them into these. They're filled with anti heroes, and mm. it is kind of that genre is a very moralistic genre that I think that he likes to play with. 
Mm. So do you think that that kind of cracks the nut on his directing style, that he is so influenced by maybe this this previous genre and that he's sort of elongating it or working through it to kind of present and offer new angles on what this type of this this is this a subgenre of this type of subgenre film can do and and what it can say is that cuz I'm always curious like how to distill like a director's style their aesthetic like how do we describe it rather than just like oh they're a good filmmaker which is like yeah yeah what the what the hell does that mean they're great at telling story okay but what the hell does that mean right like what is it what do you think we could do to try to to crack this nut that is Steven Soderbergh I think so Soderbergh, if you were to ask him, well, maybe not if you were to ask him, because I don't know how cognizant of it he is. But if you read interviews with him, pretty much every movie that he's out promoting, at some point he talks about Schizopolis. Like that movie seems like the Rosetta Stone for Steven Soderbergh, just as a filmmaker, because that is whether he's working on something like Ocean's Eleven, which has a huge budget, or he's doing Unsane, which was shot on an iPhone, um, he always talks about the lessons that he learned doing Schizopolis, which was this sort of like, you know, weird primal scream, deeply personal thing that he, he just had to work his way through when he was in a creative rut. And I think that, that for me is key. Like, I, I was... Um, in, we talked about Rebels on the Backlot during the Pulp Fiction episode, and there's a, a segment in that book, Steven Soderbergh has talked about a lot in that book, but there's a part of it where he talks about having Michael Douglas use his celebrity to get them an invitation to the White House so that he could steal shots of Michael Douglas walking around the White House in character. <laughs> and that was the biggest budget he had worked with at that point, you know? And this is someone who is like... Even when you give him a big budget, he figures out a way for his grasp to exceed his reach. He, he's just, he's mm. constantly challenging himself. He's constantly putting himself in, uh, in these creative positions where, for example, when, when he shot Shay, uh, that was one of the first major movies to be shot on the, uh, the Red One. And they were having to like helicopter ice into the jungle so that they could cool off the cameras because they, they kept overheating. And it's just one of those things that like, yeah, most people would never shoot a period piece on this brand spanking new digital camera. But to him, it was like, well, I want to shoot this period piece. And the only way for it to be economically viable is if I use this brand spanking new digital camera. So fuck it. I'm just going to go push this camera to the absolute limit and see what images I can tease out of it. And I, I really do think that that independent ethos that runs through mm. like every single one of his movies, even up to Logan Lucky, the way that he distributed that film... Um, you know, they, they did that movie independently and the entire the entire cast of it just co-owned the movie with him and whatever the movie made at the box office, that's what they made. Um, he he mm. just, he figures out a way to get these things made. He's absurdly prolific. He's, he's independent, I would say, to a fault, except for the fact that he's a great fucking filmmaker. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, I think that's the, the big thing for him, at least in my understanding of, of him. And I, I really, really admire him and his work. And I, I think the, the, the one big thing I always associate with Steven Soderbergh, regardless of what budget he's working on, he is always independent to his core. What do you think, Ryan? What, what makes Steven Soderbergh tick? I uh, totally understand everything Raymond just said, but I also, to me, a Rosetta Stone is an interview of him is an interview he gave where he said, 
basically, if I see another two shot or uh, of of a conversation, I'm going to blow my brains out <laughs> in a sense. Like he and I think Matt Damon even corroborated this that he's he's kind of totally bored with just the mechanics of making a movie, and I can kind of sympathize with that. Like it's like if I write a scene, a dialogue scene or something, I'm like, okay, well now how am I going to shoot this that's more interesting than just Shot, shot of her shot. Reaction yeah. shot. Shot of you, reaction shot. And I can see somebody like him who's so smart, who is just kind of like, uh, yeah, get that, that gets boring after a while. You want to, that's why all of his movies have the, uh, kind of a different aesthetic or feel yes. or style, because I think he just gets bored of, he doesn't want to have a Sto- Steven Soderbergh style. He doesn't want you to, mm. he, he wants you to be able to come into a movie and he's doing something new and different. And he's just like, it's, it is it, like he's, uh, rogue and experimental and DIY enough to want to be able to throw uh, something up and see what sticks as opposed to just trying the same old, same old thing that, that, that always happens. That's why he's an enigma to me. Cause I, I literally never know what mood he happens to be in that he's going to, what kind of movie he's going to make. Cause yeah. it's always completely just different and off the wall and weird. And that's probably why oceans 11 is so damn fresh 20 years later, because it was a film from the future, so to speak. Right. Because if he's, Challenging conventional filmmaking techniques, whether it's through editing, pacing, whether it's through certain types of dialogue where nothing is said but everything is said. Like literally one of my favorite scenes in the history of cinema is the bar scene where George Clooney is talking to Brad Pitt and he's saying, all right, this is how many people we've got. That makes 10. And he's like, do you think think we we need need one one more? more? And he's like, you think we need one more? Okay, we need one more. Okay, we'll get one more. And Brad Pitt literally says nothing. I know the title no- of this movie. Yeah, and, and liter- yeah, exactly. And Brad Pitt literally says nothing. He's just watching TV and has whatever it is, a drink next to him. And that's another thing too is Brad Pitt always has like a drink or food that he's consuming, which is uh, another kind of fun yeah. little character thing because it just – again, it keeps something moving. There's something interesting happening with this character. The character's hands aren't in his pockets. He's sucking down a Slurpee at the dog track or whatever it is, you know? Um but yeah, it's it's the film the filmic form is being challenged and so it's never stale. And so maybe the reason that this film being 20 years old is still fresh is precisely because maybe we still haven't caught up in so many ways. Like this is why I get so bored a lot of times with a lot of the product that just gets made um from 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 contemporary film production hubs, let's say, because they do seem so formulaic, but it's a stale formula. Maybe one that works and that gives you something nice and easy to shut your mind off. And that's not horrible, but just for me personally, I need like Ryan, you just said you never know what you're gonna get, right? It's you know, Steven Soderbergh is like a box of chocolates, right? Um but you never know. And I need that. I need to be constantly pulled forward by my by my artists, you know? And so maybe that's maybe that's exactly what it is that gets me every time with with his style and then in particular this film. Yeah, there's there's this great thing that that Ted Griffin does with this screenplay where these characters I, I think it's well established and they kind of do it almost to the point of self parody in the sequels. The the way they have this shorthand, they they speak this own their their own kind of like criminal vernacular. But not only that, there there's the scene where Brad Pitt is eating the shrimp cocktail and talking to Matt Damon, who has been tailing Terry Benedict. And uh, it's when Julia Roberts is introduced at the top of the stairs. And Matt Damon is telling Brad Pitt a story about Terry Benedict that he has picked up and tailing him. And Brad Pitt jumps in in the middle of the story and he goes, oh, yeah, and they did this to his brother. I heard about that. Like, it's little things like that. It, It seems so simple, but it's little tricks like that that really make characters come to life like 
oh, these are people who have had these conversations before with other people. It infers that, like, an on-screen life that they have that you, or you Ruben, don't have to— Or uh, Ruben, I still owe you for the thing from the thing. <laughs> the thing I'll never forget. The thing with the guy forget. in the place. <laughs> yeah, for the guy in the place. And you're like, oh, okay, so there's a back history here. There's a rich history here. They've worked on these types of things before. There's probably some shady— Like, there's a world that is opened up by, what, four seconds of, of like, two lines of, of, a, of a thing? It, that's so clever to kind of just keep things moving forward. Yeah. There's, there's another great bit of uh, uh, another great dialogue exchange with uh, George Clooney's first scene with Julia Roberts, which is the first time that we have seen this couple together and we have to know everything mm-hmm. about their relationship from this one exchange. And at one point she says to him, uh, uh, you know what your problem is? And George Clooney goes, you mean I only have one? <laughs> and it just is, it's just, yes, it's it's snappy. It has that sort of like, it's doing the Howard Hawks thing that Aaron Sorkin has spent his entire career failing to do. That like, it just, mm. oh, shit. it gives you, uh-huh. it gives Shots you everything. Well, whatever, who gives a shit? Um, <laughs> but it, it gives you everything you need to know about these characters, their relationship dynamic yes. in this simple exchange that she she's pissed at him. He doesn't take that seriously. He doesn't take himself seriously. And that's a serious problem. And there's just like, it's just great. It's just great character through dialogue. It it culminates in that line too, where he says, does he make you laugh? Referring to Terry Benedict. And she looks at him and says, he doesn't make me cry. And (laughs) when I, yeah, yeah. Like that one, you're like, oh shit. Like, okay, I know fucking everything about the relationship now because of this, this little scene that they've had where they're sharing a drink at this table. Often imitated, rarely, uh, rarely duplicated. L- like, uh, like in life, in uh, screenwriting, so often the case is uh, that actions speak louder than words. But this movie is a great example of character through dialogue, as opposed to character through action. Not that it's lacking in character through action. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess if we could just simply say, like, what what makes this film work? I mean, we've talked about a thousand things. Is it slick? Is it the editing? Is it the music? I mean, obviously it's everything. But, like, if you could boil it down, like Ryan said, people always refer to this film as being slick. What is it that makes this film in particular, having cracked the nut of Steven Soderbergh and what he does so well, what is it about this film that works? I would say that, aside from everything else we've already mentioned, that I think that really makes this thing go out with the bang, which is that it it, it does that smart thing that gamble the best gambling movies does that, which is uh, does a real good job of misdirecting you. You know, like like that's what the con is. That's what the confidence games are all about. It's like I'm pulling you in and I'm sucking you in, and oh shit! While while you were paying attention to all this shit, I was doing all this other stuff around, and uh, uh, and then I got away with it. And that big moment, the turn where we, where Steven Soderbergh, uh, we as the audience realize we've been fooled and that they've all gotten the money out in those bags. And it's like part of the kind of the plan that we didn't see or, or, or it wasn't told to us and whatever. And uh, um, that's the moment, I think, where you're like, oh, shit, they did it. You <laughs> yeah. know, like, and we didn't see it coming. Like, they even hid it from us, the audience, and they're going to get away with it. Uh, kind of like uh, uh, I think that that's what really makes this this gambling themed movie super satisfying is 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 that kind of stuff it, and which is part of the filmmaking you know which is editing and and directing and stuff and performances and and not letting you see what's coming um, they did a magic trick on the audience which is cool and hard to do agree with all of that and in addition to taking the audience for a ride it also has the faith in the audience that you need for a movie like this that. 
it, it's okay mm. if we don't explain everything. Like yes. mm-hmm. they'll they'll pick up on these things. Have you guys ever seen Latrell, the the Jacques Becker film? I think it's from 1960. No, I have not. It's a phenomenal uh, prison escape film. It's actually based on a true story, and throughout the movie, when they are the the group of prisoners are planning their escape, they're constantly doing these things that will be consequential to their escape but have absolutely no bearing on the plot or the action or the story Mm. or anything in the moment that they're doing them. For example, because they're digging out of the prison and they're underground, they have no sense of time passing because they don't have any light. So they have to make a, uh, a time turn or an hourglass. And in order to do that, they have to get some sand. And then in 40 minutes before that ever pays off, you see one character when he's in an office in the prison talking to one of the guards or something. When the guard looks away, he just grabs a handful of sand out of an ashtray and tucks it into his bandana. And they never talk about the sand again until they're using uh, until they're using the hourglass that has sand in it. And it's just one of those great moments that's like, it, it makes the audience... Yeah. Not necessarily wonder what's happening now, but it makes the audience wonder what's going to happen next. And there's a lot of that in Ocean's Eleven as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, one of the other things, I just to kind of like wrap this up, a lot of times you hear people refer to Soderbergh as one of those filmmakers that does like one for him and then one for them and then one for me and then one for them. Do we think that's accurate? And and. What is the logic behind that? A hundred percent. It is. I don't know. Because you said Soderbergh's the logic skills. is you need to put food on the table, baby, <laughs> and you need a, a job. And you're like, all right, I, I I will do this this big budget, you know, a list star movie. But at some point, you got to give me one for me. Give me my give me my bubble. Give me my uh, uh, girlfriend so then, experience. Yeah, so, so what are the ones for them? Are the ones for them like the Oceans films kind of thing? And then the ones for me are Girlfriend Experience or Schizopolis stuff. Like, is that kind of what we're thinking? Yes and no. Because I, what I was going to say is that I think one of the – well, yes, I, I would agree with that. But the no side of it is that I think one of Soderbergh's greatest skills as a, as a filmmaker is that he figures out how to make the ones for them into ones for him. Like – he, he really does. He, he still, it comes back to what I was saying before. It, he takes Ocean's Eleven as an opportunity to play in a bigger sandbox with somebody else's money, but he's still trying new things. I mean, if you listen to the commentary between him and Ted Griffin, it's very clear that he had a hell of a time making this movie. Hmm. And he, he talks about how uh, thinking about the edit during shooting, that they would just kind of uh, for example, there's that great transition where Brad Pitt has the balloons in his car and then it cuts to Casey Affleck, you know, yeah. walking the balloons along so the good. casino hall. When they were shooting the Brad Pitt scene, they didn't have the balloons in the car. And Steven Soderbergh is sitting there thinking to himself like, oh, yeah, the scene's working fine, but I have no clue how it's going to cut into that scene with Casey carrying the balloons around. And then he went over to his AD and he's like hey, is there any chance we can get those fucking balloons over here as soon as possible? And then they just waited around for 30 minutes until the balloons showed up. And it is that sort of thing where, like, he's he's never he's never satisfied. He's never going to stop and say, like, oh, yeah, that's good enough. It, it, there, there's never a point mm. at which he thinks to himself, like, well, this is just one for the studio anyway. Who gives a shit? I'll just phone it in. There is no such thing as phoning it in for him, which is why I think he, he had that brief... Uh, retirement from uh, from film uh, for a while, where mm. he was just like sim- well, technically still in that. Oh no, exactly. But it was similar to his uh, his Schizopolis break, where I think he just needed to figure out how to be excited about this art form again. Um, and mm. that's what's so exciting about him as a filmmaker to me is he never loses that passion. 
Okay, thirty seconds. Why? Why? Why do this? Why does the sequel your least favorite film, Ryan? Well, it's it's too um, up its own ass and self aware in a way. I mean that that and long, very importantly, very long movie, and uh, it was way more boring and not and it didn't work as well in the second movie. Then that whole scene where they literally. Uh, see themselves like oh or Julia Roberts his character pretends to be Julia Roberts in real life that was definitely where I mean kudos for her trying but I was but in the theater that I was like biggest eye roll ever I'm like that's how they're getting out of this uh, uh, of course she's Julia Roberts. It was so stupid to me. Um, so all those reasons maybe some people like it but I don't know I thought that that they went back to making a pretty uh, 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 mainstream movie the next one but i would disagree with with or uh, i'm sorry i agree with what raymond basically said in terms of i don't think that he is phoning it in on his ones for them but he certainly is a guy that's smart enough to know when one of his movies is more commercially viable than another and so i think that that and and he'll let them know based on the budget of that i mean i'm sure i think that they thought shay was going to be a huge you know, Oscar prestige movie for them. And that was his one for them, but he did, he put too much of him in it, you know, made it too much of him and then made it too crazy. And that one was a huge failure. You know, I'm looking at his thing. Magic Mike, I think was his idea of like, Oh, this is going to be a one for them. It's, you know, got everything Channing Tatum, dancing guys, you know, date movie. Great movie. And that movie made a bazillion yeah. million dollars, you know, yeah. but then and it's uh, a great movie too. But, uh, People, yeah. people sleep on that Lava. movie. If you've yeah, never movie seen rocks. Magic Mike, it's, it's another one of those let's get the gang together kinds, but it's about teamwork really and camaraderie totally. and dudes. It's freaking fantastic, man. But I also don't know that I, I would call that one for them because I think the, the origin of that project was him talking to Channing Tatum about his life and saying like, oh, this could mm. be a movie. And then it just kind of took off from there. Yeah, I guess it's our definition of what one for them means. I, I, yeah, because I, I, it sounds bad. Like it's like, oh shit, I gotta make this movie. Fuck, you know, I'm not gonna be into it. But I think that he brings movies that are gonna be like, all right, this one needs a big budget with a big marketing campaign. This is for the masses. And yeah, I'm only gonna do it if I'm into there are definitely, it. Which props to him. Definitely times at which Aaron Brockovich seems a little pandery. It it seems uh, a little bit sure. more mercenary than some of his other movies. But he was still mm. on the rebound a little bit after uh, you know Out of Sight. I think is a great movie, but it didn't do very well. Um, That's my favorite of his movies, by the way. Go see it. All right, let's wrap up this discussion about Ocean's Eleven and Soderbergh for now. I guess we've got to revisit Soderbergh at some point because the filmography is huge and there's so much juicy stuff there. So we'll put a little button on that and then we'll kind of try to revisit it at some point. But I want to turn to the mailbag now. We got some – we got a voicemail that we want to play, but then we also got some really thoughtful emails that we'll try to get to as many as we can in the remaining few minutes here. Um, If you want to call in and talk with us about Soderbergh, if you want to talk about Attack the Block, which is the film we did last week, if you want to talk about Inside by Bo Burnham, which everybody seems to still have thoughts on, if you want to talk about Top Gun, if you want to talk about Boss Baby, which we did like three friggin' years ago or whatever the heck it was, if you want to talk about Video Drum. We've got to do Top Gun Maverick this summer. I it, yes, we but definitely. So if you want to call us and you want to contribute to the conversation, if you want to ask us a question, throw out a tidbit, please. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. That's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. And then you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. We're gonna start off with a voicemail from Delaney, who had some thoughts on Burnham's Inside. 
Hi, Wisecrack. My name is Delaney, and I'm calling about uh, Show Me the Meanings, recent coverage of Bo Burnham's Inside. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention was in his previous special, he talked, he had a song, and he talked a bit about how he was really self-conscious about his body. And I think in his most recent special, Inside, we see kind of different levels of, frankly, nakedness. You know, at some point, he's just shirt and underwear, sometimes just underwear, and then at the very, very end, we seem completely naked. And so I'm almost wondering if this is kind of like an external representation of him kind of like opening up a bit to the audience, because I think, you know, as we can see, he kind of went under a lot of mental duress to create the special. So I wonder if that's kind of reflected in how, um, how he dressed during the special as well. And uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was at the very end, you kind of see him watching his own special and smiling. Um, and I, I sort of hope that he's kind of showing this to show that even though he kind of went through a lot of that difficulty, he was kind of happy with how it turned out. So we'd love to hear your take. Thank you very much. Bye. Okay, so basically, uh, in case I was cutting out a little bit there, but Delaney was basically asking about uh, the kind of body image stuff and nakedness that is a theme in Burnham's Inside, something that he's referenced in previous specials that he's like, I think it's like he's like, I don't go to the gym because I'm ashamed of my body, but I'm ashamed of my body because I don't go to the gym sort of thing. And he's talked about this a lot. And then in this one, he it goes through varying stages of nakedness, you know, in his underwear being partly covered. And then at the very end, he's totally naked. And what do we think about that? Is that Burnham kind of addressing his his own like maybe body dysmorphia or or concerns about his 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 body and how he's ashamed of his body um the first thing i would say is i kind of thought that maybe it was also like nakedness is oftentimes um i have no shame here i am in total kind of more metaphorically so that was kind of one of the things i was thinking too it's kind of like him saying just here i am raw right now is the best i can this is my i'm not hiding anything from you i'm doing the best that i can uh, in a digital mediated space to just completely expose myself. I was kind of thinking about that, but what do you guys think? I was thinking it was more like, fuck, I'm why, why get dressed? I'm, uh, uh, it's the pandemic. Yeah, that's partly it too. <laughs> what's the point of putting on pants? I, why don't I just film this shit in my underwear? Uh, let's go. <laughs> uh, I hope it was that loose and on his production and, you know, and that he wasn't putting that much thought into uh, uh, to everything because I kind of like the fact of how you know uh, all over the place this thing feels and and loosey goosey and just yeah it was relatable as somebody who sits around and makes little <laughs> shorts and just comes up with an idea, shoots the thing later that afternoon, edits that night, and then you know watches it t tomorrow. Like uh, uh, that's kind of what I got the feel of when from the. From the aesthetic of the film. Very much in the right. uh, in the independent spirit, uh, apropos of our discussion about Soderbergh. I, I I didn't really think much of it, not in any kind of qualitative way, because I I wasn't reading it as um uh you know it it didn't really register to me that he's had or talked about issues with uh, with body image in the past. Uh, if that's the case, um, that that wasn't really something on my radar at the time that I watched Inside. Uh, but I, I just saw it as sort of like a, a signifier of mental deterioration. Um, by the end of the movie, he's kind of reverted to this sort of Howard Hughesian state where he's just like confined to this screening room. He's, as Delaney mentioned on the voicemail, he's watching himself on the special. And I, I do remember in a, uh, a previous special, he said something to the effect of um, uh, Instagram or social media just as... 
a burgeoning art form or whatever we want to call it was this sort of like Ouroboros of, you know, the, the audience and the creators becoming one. And I, I just thought that the, the final bit of Inside was a sort of visual representation of that, that he is in a way creating this for himself, this, uh, mm. this sense of expression at the, the, the beginning of it. He says, you know, daddy made you some content. Daddy made you your favorite open wide. And by the end of it, it's just like, no, this is just for him. And there's, there's like a sadness, but a, an authenticity to that, even though obviously this is a, a very clearly planned, produced and manufactured reality he's created within his little guest home. Um, so I don't know. I, I just read it as uh, as that. But Delaney brings up an interesting point, tying it into some of his previous work. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, with the second part of her question about, you know, is he happy? Is he satisfied with his work? You know, there's the part where he says that I don't know if I'm going to ever finish this. Da, 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 and then he does. So is there a sense of satisfaction, maybe a tragic satisfaction, too, because then he has to let it go. Right. Which is another thing he says. I don't want to release this because then um, I'm going to have to be done with it. And I don't want to do that because then what do you do? Twiddle your fucking thumbs. Right. So you kind of do get this obsessive. You kind of get swept up in it when you are creating a project like that. And so is there a sort of like tragic happiness at the end when he finishes it? Or is it kind of something else where it's it's not that he's happy with the product? Like, oh, look at what I made. I made something freaking awesome. But it's like, you know, at the end of the world, what do you do? How do you create art? This is what kind of Michael brought up in the Inside episode. It's about it being fatalistic. And he's kind of like, well, all we can really do is just fucking amuse ourselves as we go down in flames, right? And maybe that's kind of... Amen, brother. Maybe that's kind of what he was doing too. The, the sort of Neil Postman amusing ourselves to death with our somas that we, that we take in, in in digital media. But I don't know. Um, the last thing I want to do is I just want to briefly come to a Top Gun email because I kind of enjoyed this and it has an interesting question. It's from Matthew. says, hey, show me the meaning crew. On the Top Gun episode, you mentioned that the film was non-committal on who specifically they were fighting. That extends to several purposeful inaccuracies concerning the MiG-28. Firstly, even numbers are not used in MiG designations. Also, all black color schemes are not used for combat aircraft because it makes them much easier to see than, for example, gray. Lastly, they employ the Northrop F-5 as the enemy fighter as the enemy fighter to utilize uh, live footage, but it would never be mistaken for any MiG aircraft. My question is that under what circumstances do you think technical accuracy should take precedence over narrative clarity or cinematic energy, if ever? What do y'all think? Zero uh, percent. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I actually, I don't know. I, I a hundred, I'm like, I kind of, I personally think I'm like, look, Film is, even when it's based on a true story, if it's a documentary, it's never quote-unquote real with a capital R, right? We're always approximating a sense of reality and emotion, trying to stir something up, expressive of a vision, um, trying to reach an audience at a, at a shared societal or cultural understanding, something along those lines. But I am totally okay with sacrificing technical accuracy for the sake of, like, style, you know, and call it call it a MiG-28 and let it be a Boeing 727. I really don't care because maybe because maybe that's funny if you're using, like, a juxtaposition where you're like, oh, but it's actually not, right? Like, I, it could be for a variety of reasons. But, yeah, I don't really care about technical accuracy We touched on this in the, uh, in the Top Gun episode, and one of their advisors even said in uh, – uh, the making of feature that 
there is no Top Gun trophy, um, specifically because <laughs> if right. if at the if at the real Top Gun they had a trophy, then pilots would constantly be killing each other in the air, like trying to outmaneuver each other and stuff. Because these guys are just that that degree of hyper competitive. And I think we even touched on how like these combat maneuvers are just sort of bare facsimiles of real combat maneuvers. Planes never actually get that close to each other, like. It, they they told Tony Scott uh, in actual aerial combat maneuvering you would never be able to capture two planes in the same movie frame and Tony Scott was like well that's not fun to watch so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it reminds me of um, Django Unchained I remember Tarantino not catching any heat but there was some uh, uh, firearms historical expert who said like oh the pistol that Django carries around is that's a historical anachronism it wouldn't be around at the time and then tarantino's response was like yeah but it looks really fucking cool on his hip <laughs> like, yeah what to tell you man yeah exactly i uh, uh i i think there's times in movies where it is cool that when someone says oh that's a accurate you know like, like uh, uh especially when a movie has to do with like a feel like oh a medical field or if there's some medical drama movie where doctors are like you know this is actually an accurate scene Sure, that's pretty cool, but it's like, do I care about it as on an on a, on a everyday movie goer way? No, fuck no. Um, I will say that when it comes to like documentaries and what is a documentary and stuff, sometimes that gets a little dicey in terms of whether if you're portraying something as real and then it's not. I uh, I have this movie that I saw recently called Bloody Noses, Empty Pockets. Ah. Have you guys heard of this yeah, movie? Yeah, the Ross Brothers, Bill and Turner. Yeah, okay, so I had never heard of these guys, and I watched this entire movie literally thinking and believing it was a documentary of this bar's last night of in its existence and all these weird barfly people that came to the bar. And then I go read about it like later, uh, and it's like completely staged. And I'm like... And, but they play it off like a documentary, like a cinema verite documentary. So I was like, hmm, was I had, you know, or or should these guys, you know, uh, I don't know. At the end of the day, it was a very interesting thing. And, and a part of me was like, I felt stupid. Yeah, <laughs> but that ties into the book. Also, I was like, good, there's, good guy, there's good an job, aspect guys. of like performance art to that, you know. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, I was gonna say, if people are interested in this too, Orson Welles' F for Fake, uh, F is for Fake, is is a great movie that kind of explores this, and uh, I would definitely recommend that people people check that out. I think you can actually just watch it on YouTube as well. Maybe not, but but go check that out because it does explore kind of like the the limits between art and fabrication and things like that. So we got to wrap it up there, though. Where can people find us on the internet? Right, Ryan. Where can people find you? You can find me on Ryan Shorts. On YouTube, I actually have a movie about Ocean's Eleven, and I need everyone to go watch it because it's really important. <laughs> it's called, it's about, oh, it's the Ocean's Eight Conspiracy, I think is what it's called. It's a very important video. Um, everyone go watch it. And, uh, this is the, uh, the loose change of our generation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Raymond, where can people find you, brother? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at Crematoria. I haven't done any Ocean's Eleven conspiracy videos, but uh, I mentioned last week I did write a, a more extensive review of uh, Bo Burnham's Inside on my Letterboxd, so if you're interested in more of my thoughts on that, you can check it out there. Sick, and if you want, you can track me down on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. You can find me on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Hit me up on TikTok, Austin.Hayden. Do a philosophy podcast. Just Google me. There's, there's stuff out there. Blah, 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 blah. Ryan, send us out. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Show Me the Meaning.